and welcome to Small Town Mysteries, where we talk about shit that went down in these small towns, shit that's unsolved, and shit that led to more shit. Except none of these stories actually involve shit so far. I don't know, Christine, what do we got today? Anything? I'm so sorry to disappoint yet again, Uh, but... One of these days, we'll be able to change the intro. (laughs) I'm Kate, here with Christine. Hello. And Rachel. Hello. Bringing you our very first episode. That's not right. Bringing you... <laughs> <laughs> We're just starting over, guys. It's going to be our first episode. Start anew. Um, bringing you our 12th episode. Wow. Woo! We got some uh, interesting cases here. I know Christine has a good little quick one for us, and I've got a slightly longer one. So uh, if it's all right with you guys, we'll just dive right in yes all right so on may 9th 1994 a smart soon-to-be pre-med student named cleshendra hall vanished after clocking out of her part-time job in pine bluff arkansas her case remains unsolved and one particular individual remains highly suspect I will be calling her Clea throughout this segment because that's what she went by. Her family and friends all called her Clea. So Clea was born on March 30th, 1976 to parents Willie and Laurel Hall. She was an extremely dedicated, responsible teenager and was only two weeks from graduating high school at the time of her disappearance. Yeah. That's so sad. So young. And she pretty much had her future mapped out ahead of her. She was an honor student at her high school and had landed an internship at a Boston pediatrician's office for the summer. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. She had also been accepted into the pre-med program at Tennessee State University and had been chosen to give a commencement speech at her graduation ceremony. So she was one of those mm-hmm. high achievers who kind of had a plan for her life and an incredibly bright future ahead of her, which is why for a lot of people, it was just out of the question that she would just willingly disappear. Mm-hmm. Along with the fact that she had never had a history of running away from home or really being a troubled teen, so to speak. If you're about to tell me that she went missing and the police immediately categorized her as a runaway, I'm going to lose my shit. I mean... Oh, no! (laughs) This is your time to log out, Rachel. (laughs) Yeah, we will get there. I feel like every single time I have a case, it is the same story with that. It's unfortunately very common, especially among women of color. Mm -hmm. Now, Clea had been working a part-time job at the time of her disappearance. This was at the house of Dr. Larry Amos, who ran a non-profit charitable organization which supported in-home daycare centers. I guess this guy wasn't even a doctor, and he was just a businessman, so I'm not Mm. really sure why the title's there, but that is what he's called on literally every single website I looked at. Every single website. So, I don't know. Don't know where that came from, or if he's like one of those PH people that's like needing to be called a doctor, but it was on like NBC, on CNN, I don't know technically like if you get your phd in something you're a doctor yeah i, I feel like so. a lot of a lot of people with phds who don't have a med d don't go by doctor 
Right. Because, like, in your ca- in your previous case, Rachel, like, she had earned her PhD, but she wasn't, like, doctor, you know? Like, she was That's referred to by her, her first though. Name. They said, like, doctor. Um, yeah. Really? I guess so. Yeah. Maybe. But I don't know. He was just a businessman. I don't even know if he had his PhD. He was just, just a guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, this job, which involved Clea completing clerical work and which she took to save up money for her Boston internship and for college was only a few blocks from her house, and her mom or other family members would usually drive her and pick her up from work. So, on the evening of May 9th, 1994, Laurel Hall picks up Clea from school, which she gets out of early because she's a senior. I forgot that was a thing for seniors, too, but I never I never had that because of AP classes, but it was yeah. a thing at our school, you know? Like, so you had to, like take it as a class right you had to have an internship yeah and you usually had to like have some job or something that you were going to in the time period they didn't like let people leave Hmm. so laurel plans to drop clea off at her work since she is expected there early on this day but no one is at the amos household so they go back home and clea takes a nap clea's mom drives her back there around five o'clock for her regularly for her regularly scheduled shift, and Clea starts work. Clea calls around 8 p.m. and talks to her mom briefly, and her mom expects another call to be coming soon from her, asking for a ride, but that call never comes. Mm. Laurel wakes up close to 1 a.m. and realizes that Clea never called, and when she realizes that her daughter is not home, Laurel calls Dr. Larry Amos... Dr. Larry Amos, that's why I have these both in there, because I pronounce it that way all the time, and I, Laurel, Laurel, but it's Laurel. It's Laurel. Yeah. Literally, you don't understand, I was waiting for the right moment to be like, Christine, I really love that you just put, like, the pronunciation, like, right after all of it in bold. Like, I knew that, that I would do that every time. Um, it's really excellent foresight. Yeah, and, um, a decent amount of this information comes directly from Laurel because she did like a YouTube podcast with a person mm-hmm. talking about a bunch of stuff that has happened. And that's where I got all the pronunciations of the names to make sure they were right. So Laurel calls Dr. Larry Amos, who tells her that Clea left work at 8.30 p.m. And obviously her parents are extremely worried at this point. Mm-hmm. So I guess it was that same morning, since it was already 1 a.m., they call the police pretty soon after. And guess what the police tell them when they call? Oh, I know. Yeah, it's the good old, oh, sorry, you need to wait 24 hours to file a police report business. That is absolute mm. bullshit. It's not it true. And if everybody doesn't know that, it's not true. You can report anybody missing, no matter... How many times, like, doesn't matter the time they've been gone. Yeah, it was a lot more common to say that and for that to kind of be, like, a thing in the 80s and 90s, I know. Yeah. But it still was not necessarily true. Laurel files the police report at exactly 5 p.m. the next day, but she has expressed her belief that the police did not take this report seriously Mm -hmm. and treat the situation as if it's just another teenage runaway case. Also, 
Yeah. Well, also, she was a woman of color. And especially yep. in that time, it yeah. was like, women of oh, color well. don't matter as much as white women right. or white people, which is obviously not yeah. the case. At the time, they literally told Laurel, she's 18 and can come and go as she pleases. So. It's like, that's technically true. But when you have a child whose habits and patterns you know. Right. I don't feel like that really is a valid excuse. Like, oh, she's 18. She can do whatever she wants. And it's like, yeah, she's 18. But she always calls me at 830 for a ride home. Right. And she doesn't have her own car or bank account. This is before cell phones. It is. Yeah. Like, so... Why would she not follow that habit, you know? It's just such a weak excuse. So due to this, Laurel takes it upon herself to conduct a search in a wooded area across from the place that Clea worked, and she begins putting up flyers. Several days later, the Pine Bluff Police Department starts to get more involved in the search. But after over 28 years, there are still no real answers as to what happened that day on May 9th. According to Detective Lieutenant Terry Hobson, who had been on Clea's case since she first went missing, we looked, we hunted, we spent months searching, but she is just gone and we don't know how. He also stated, We were told she walked out of that house at 8.30pm, but we have not been able to find a shred of physical evidence. So, a whole lot of nothing. And Clea's mom admits that the Pine Bluff Police Department has done better in recent years, But as we know, it's really the first couple days that matter in cases like these. And Mm -hmm. she feels that this was such a crucial time period that they just kind of straight up missed. Yeah. Well, the thing is, isn't the first 20, like the first 24 hours the most valuable? It's the first 48, generally, is what they say. Why did I say 24? No, because depending on who you ask, you can't even file a police report in the first 24 hours. So (laughs) what are they going to do? They're certainly not going to be out looking for anyone yet. It's ridiculous. And person of interest, anyone? Yeah, lay it on me. Who we got? <laughs> Let's hear so, it. So, it was the last person to have seen her alive, at least that we know of, which was the quote-unquote doctor. Maybe quote-unquote. Maybe actually, but no I'm information. Like- no information as to if that's true or not. So, Amos has been a person of interest throughout this investigation, And it doesn't help that there have been some pretty sketchy things and behaviors from him. First, he has given a couple different accounts as to what happened that night. The first account he gave was that he didn't know when Clea left, but he heard the garage door close. And another statement he gave was that he watched Clea look out the window for her ride, and then she left in a car with a peach popsicle in her hand. So... Kind of two different accounts. Too specific. Yeah. He also left on an alleged business trip the day after Clea's disappearance, coming back three days later, which he says was planned. Hmm. Okay. And then he has reportedly been seen taking down Clea's missing person flyers and has also paid individuals in the neighborhood to take down her flyers for him. No, I... Why? Why? That's what my question was, and literally the only explanation I saw for, like, a potential reason that he could do this was that he could have been taking them down because they advertised his address, like, where she was last seen, 
and it could have been hurtful to his business? I guess. But the thing is, if you're a good person and your employee, like, went missing, like, that wouldn't matter. You'd want them to be found. That's the number one priority. You're not taking down the missing flyers, you know? Like, And that's definitely something that her mom expressed a lot was that she just – she hasn't even had contact with him since the first week that she went missing, and it's been 28 plus years. Like, he hasn't really done anything That's just for the all- case. Also, according to her he, and just other websites, I didn't see the specific number on other websites, but she says that he had eight renovations done on his house following Clea's disappearance. That's sketchy. Oh. sketchy. And I couldn't, like, substantiate some of the other stuff I read through more legitimate websites, but there were... A couple websites that said that the workers that were doing the renovations there noticed smells, just weird smells coming from the thing is, the smell of decay is, you know, you know exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I can't verify that. And it could just be kind of rumors that float around, but. I don't know. Um, some of the other behaviors are definitely sketchy and verified. Yeah, so sketchy behaviors without that, but that definitely is an interesting tidbit. Quick question. Is he still alive? Um, from what I hear, yes. As of a few years ago. Hmm. So okay. probably, I mean, he was, he wasn't that old, I don't believe, at the time of her disappearance. I couldn't find much information on him. I wanted to find yep. pictures or like something, but... Um, I couldn't really find anything. Naturally, the person I am, I'm currently on Google trying to like figure out who yeah. the fuck this man is. And the only things that come up are her. Like, yeah, there's I nothing know. about him. It's just focused on her. Well, if he was trying to keep his reputation separate from her disappearance, he clearly failed. Yeah, very little, very little information on him. So... 18 years after Clea vanished, Amos's house is searched by police after a tip was received. Mm. In 2012, I saw that. <laughs> so according to Detective Lieutenant Hobson, police were initially granted full access to Amos's ho- home on his return back from that business trip that he had initially. But... There was some sort of disagreement between him and a detective at the department, which led to Amos then denying police access to search his home. And also, he apparently filed a complaint against this officer for harassment. Huh. I don't know what happened there. I have another question for you. Yes. Was Dr. Amos, was he a person of color or was he a white man? I, again, don't know. Like, I also was, I, like, thought that too. But the only stuff I could find on that was on, like, under the YouTube video of Laurel and that, like, interview that she did. Mm -hmm. And there were also conflicting information there. Like, one person was like, oh, yeah, he's a black man. And then one person was like, oh, this white man. And then, so I don't know. I really, I'm not sure. Because obviously that could have played a role. Because the thing is, especially during that time, I feel like 
police were probably more likely to be like, okay, I'm going to investigate a person of color versus a Caucasian Mm -hmm. male. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. But when they finally did search his home 18 years later, nothing substantial was found. And of course, at this time, that's not very shocking. Laurel herself states that she did not expect anything to come out of the search, though was happy that something was being done. She does have issues with Amos as she feels that he's not done enough to eliminate himself as a suspect. And I can definitely see this from the standpoint of a mother. And this guy, for real, does seem hella fishy. Like, hella fishy. But also, like, it is a lot smarter not to incriminate yourself. And, like, you know. Yeah, but, like. Graph test and stuff like that. Like, I would never take a polygraph. I'm just saying. Like, for anything, I just, I wouldn't take a polygraph. They're just not reliable enough. More on that in my case um, about polygraphs, but I agree <sighs> that I feel like there are ways to help an ongoing investigation that don't incriminate you. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Polygraphs are absolute bullshit. But the fact yeah, that right. he took down the posters, mm-hmm. that says yeah, it all, so, in my opinion. That's so sus. Yeah, I even say, like, I would at least go to search parties, like, get the word out, do anything mm-hmm. I can to try to, like, find this person. Like, it's just or weird that he hasn't. At the bare minimum, allow police to search your home. If you're not hiding anything. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but the thing is, if he was a person of color, that could have impacted, like, his decision making. That is true, yeah. Like, if he was black, he might have not been very trusting of the police so well because at that time they were just pinning whatever they could like yeah people of color were scapegoats right she also admits that she does not like the way police handled the evidence that they tested and got from the search of his house she said it was left in a car and then sitting in evidence for 40 days before they finally got it sent to the lab which yikes that's not that's not good i can't form words my mouth is just like to the floor especially like this is so long after like you're really gonna Mm -hmm. wait longer it just doesn't make sense what's 40 days on top of 18 years (laughs) yes but ultimately clea's parents are still hopeful after all this time Clea's mother states that she still is going to believe that her daughter is alive until evidence proves otherwise. Just that's how she's going to operate. And she says, it's like we're stuck in time. She was 18 when she disappeared. Tomorrow she'll be 36. And all I have is the 18-year-old reference. Even if she wasn't alive, I would just like to know that that's the case. Which is heartbreaking. Yeah. And she also speaks to the difficulty of her disappearance on the family as a whole. She says, she was my only daughter. We have been frustrated with the police, but also guilt-ridden. Maybe we didn't do enough to protect her. Which is horrible that she thinks that, because even listening to the interview, like, she seemed like such a protective mother. The only reason she let her take the job, because it was literally, like, three or four blocks away from the house. And mm-hmm. they knew where she was at all times. And just the thought that she feels guilty is horrible to me. I think it it's just horrible when, like, somebody, like, takes the precautions 
to be safe and mm-hmm. makes conscious decisions and something still happens to them. Like, that's when it's just, like, for real. Like, why? It's yeah. just even more tragic. Yeah. As the years go by, Laurel and her husband keep praying for answers. Laurel says, we keep getting older, but we won't die without knowing what happened to my daughter. She does so much. Every year they release balloons. And on the balloons are, like, information about Kleshendra. And she has, like, t-shirts. Like, she always puts up flyers. She's still just very involved in mm-hmm. the investigation and is trying very hard to get answers. To close out, Kleshendra Hall is black, stands 5 foot 8 inches tall, weighs around 120 pounds, and has dark short hair, dark eyes. She has a surgical scar on her left knee and a slightly chipped front tooth. Police urge anyone with more information regarding the whereabouts of Kleshendra Hall to call Pine Bluff Police Department at 870-543-5111. So, that was my case. That's just... That is absolutely horrible. I feel like... It's a miscarriage of justice. Mm -hmm. Also, after... I didn't think I've heard of this case, but... When I looked and just pictures of her came up, I recognize her. I've seen her before. She was she was beautiful. Absolutely she was gorgeous. So beautiful. And she had so much ahead of her, which is just so sad. I don't know. It's really hard for me when people like this so called doctor like aren't forecoming. Like I don't know why you would try and be sketchy. Mm-hmm. during something yeah. like this like it just doesn't make sense like clearly he knows something yeah my heart goes out to her poor mother the thing is yeah. like the fact that she's still she's still telling herself that her daughter is alive until mm-hmm. proven otherwise is is few and far in between i yeah. feel like i don't usually hear that when i listen to true crime mm-hmm. right all right kate I believe you are going to be talking about a very well-known case, but with a little bit of an interesting twist and a a small-town mystery twist. I can't say that this is a mood brightener. No. You're (laughs) just going to ruin me further. It's also a very devastating case. Mm -hmm. But before I get into it, I also just want to say that to prove my dedication to research I did for this, I actually found a compilation of all of the legal documents filed in this case, including charges, all of the police reports, autopsy reports. It was 2,000 pages long. So wait, how did, did you just like, it was just on the internet, you just found it? I found it on Reddit. Wow. Yeah, I have the link if you want to read it sometime. It's obviously like a lot. I only skimmed through it. Very interesting to see the official autopsy reports and sort of all those documents that are now public. Yeah, super, super interesting. So I haven't said it yet, but the case I'm covering today is one that you guys are definitely both familiar with or have at least heard of. I'm going to dig into some aspects of the case that are influenced by its location, which is a small town. A small town. (laughs) So without further ado, let's dive into the Watts family murders. 
I love the title of your Google Doc, by the way. Thank Kate's you. title is literally Chris Watts, and then in parentheses, bastard. <laughs> I'm just saying it like it is. I don't like this man. I don't care if he knows it. I think you're in the majority. Absolutely am. All right, so the Watts family, consisting of Chris, Shanann, Bella, age four, and Celeste, age three, um, that is not a complete sentence that I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> you Great English start. major, what the fuck are you doing? Great start. Anyway, that was what the Watts family consisted of. Um, and then Shanann was also 15 weeks pregnant with a boy that she had already named Nico. The family lived in Frederick, Colorado. I'm sorry, but like, Christine doesn't show most, does not show a lot of emotion. But when you said Nico, her face just went to like a full, like, absolute distraught. Well, that name is just so cute. I'm like, right? I know a Nico and I can't. Yeah. So Frederick, Colorado has a population of 14,500 people as of the 2020 census, which was a 67% increase from the 2010 census. So the population was a little bit lower than 14,500, but um, definitely on the ups when this crime actually occurred in 2018. So like I always do, I want to start with a basic outline and then dig in with more detail because that seems to be the way that I do it best. So Chris and Shanann had moved to Colorado in 2013, and in 2015, they declared bankruptcy. There were financial financial issues there. The documentary on Netflix about this case has a lot of info about that. I didn't dig into it because it didn't seem particularly relevant, just knowing that there were financial difficulties seemed to um, check enough of the boxes off. They welcomed their daughter Bella in 2013. And Celeste, or Cece, as they called her, in 2015. Oh. Shanann worked as a sales consultant for a multi-level marketing scheme, which sucks because those are so predatory. And the family already had money issues and had declared bankruptcy. But which one was it? Was it a popular one? Uh, it wasn't one that I was familiar with. It was, like, okay. the specific brand that she sold was not one I was familiar with. And then gotcha. it was, like, owned by a bigger conglomerate that I also was not familiar with. So yeah. I didn't include okay. the name because this isn't their problem. Yeah. I was um, just wondering if it was, like, a, you know, well-known No, if it was, like, LuLaRoe, I would have named that's, it off. That's what I was thinking of, honestly. <laughs> LuLaRoe yeah. would have gotten a name drop. But it wasn't LuLaRoe. It was, like, some other something or other. I don't know. And Chris worked for a petroleum company. Same thing. I'm not going to name drop because I don't want to drag him into this. Um, And I will say that, unfortunately, that last bit about where Chris worked as a worker in a petroleum company does become important later. And I hate having to say that, but I feel like you guys know what happened. Um, So Shanann had been on a business trip, which once I just want to say this one more time, sucks. Because she probably had to pay for that flight to get to this business trip, where she probably had to pay for the hotel to go on this trip sponsored by a predatory multi-level marketing scheme when her family was already in financial distress. But that's a different rant for a different day, and I'm not going to get into it. She returned uh, to Frederick, Colorado on August 13th, a little after midnight. Her best friend, Nicole Atkinson, drove her home from the airport and dropped her off a little bit before 2 a.m. Nicole is one of uh, two heroes that I really talk about in this story. She is just remarkable. She knew Shanann's schedule so well 
that the next morning when Shanann missed an OBGYN appointment, remember she was 15 weeks pregnant, um, and then a work meeting, Nicole went by her house to check on her. Just immediately was like, this isn't right. I'm sorry, but I'm sure we're all thinking the same thing. This would be Braylee. She'd be like, you missed your OBGYN apartment? What the fuck are you doing? Or like, you missed your work meeting that you were so ready for after your business trip? Like, Braylee would absolutely be like, so why? Why aren't you texting me back? Like, she cares so deeply and so truly. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Braylee, friend of the podcast. Oh, and our, um, what is it? Our muse, the podcast muse. muse. She's the official podcast muse. Officially, um, yeah. Well, she just inspires the memes I post on our Instagram account. That's true. <laughs> that counts as a muse. Yeah. I don't want to say she's the muse for a true crime podcast because that sounds like oh, not that does right. Sound- so I'm 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 gonna say she's the muse for the podcast's Instagram account. That does sound very bad. Sorry. It makes her seem like she's some kind of serial killer. She's not. If no. she was cover it. That's true. It absolutely would. Hello. First person experience. Anyway, she's not. She's a friend of the podcast. Um, and we care about her deeply and she cares about us deeply, which is why she is the Nicole Atkinson of our group. She would know if our schedules were not right. 100%. So Nicole stopped by her house to check on Shanann and the kids. Shanann didn't answer the door. Nicole called Chris, which, yeah, that makes sense. Chris called the cops because he was like, oh, that's weird. <sighs> Frederick Police Department performed a wellness check at around 1.40 p.m., so about 12 hours after Shanann returned for her business trip, the police were in the house performing a wellness check. Inside of the house, police officers found some of Shanann's personal belongings, including her keys and cell phone, and her car was still parked in the garage with the girls' car seats installed. So that seems to indicate that she hadn't left willingly. No. Also, her wedding ring was found on her bedside table. And also, because I know you guys care, the dog was in the home and he was totally fine. Completely unharmed. A good dog. The thing is... You would not leave your keys, your cell phone, and all that shit in the house. Like, if you're mm-hmm. going to go somewhere, it doesn't really matter how far you're going. So, clearly, like, that's a, that is suspicious. Right. And so, I, I agree that there are a lot of mixed signals with what was found in the house. So, you think if she's leaving Chris in the marriage, that would explain the abandoned ring. But she wasn't bringing the girls when she left because the car seats were still in the car how did she leave her car how did she leave if her car is in the garage and if she and the girls were kidnapped why did she leave a ring on the bedside table well also like a lot of people don't sleep with their rings on so the fact that it was on her like bedside table i feel like is relatively normal like sometimes you forget to put it back on in the morning well this is a lot of mixed signals here so my, my point being well also one last question. If there had been a home invasion, wouldn't the dog be freaking out? I feel like you always hear that in a lot of stories, like when someone's gone missing, that their dog was freaking out. Dog was fine. So a lot of questions. Lots of questions. And then in a very gone girl move, um, Chris gave a bunch of press conferences asking for the safe return of his family, which isn't the best comparison because the guy in Gone Girl, Ben Affleck, He didn't actually have anything to do with his wife's disappearance in the end, but it's still that image of, like, 
guy who probably knows more than he's admitting giving a press conference when he does, in fact, have information related to what happened. Just puts a bad taste in your mouth to see this guy standing in front of his house asking for their safe return, knowing ultimately what happened in the house right behind him. So, anyway. Sometime um, in the course of the early investigation right away on that first day, Chris and Shanann's neighbor from across the street, who is the other hero in our story named Nate, approached police with footage from a security camera on his house that um, showed the Watts home pretty clearly. Apparently, he was um, familiar with their regular goings-on as well, and so he was able to kind of call out some of Chris's behavior as weird. So Chris and the police officer went over to watch the footage, and you can actually see in the police body cam footage, um, which is in the Netflix special, The Murderer Next Door, that um, Chris had a really bizarre reaction to seeing this footage. So he was reportedly very twitchy and nervous. So Chris left. Nate said, all right, you know, hope we figured this out. And then Nate immediately turned to the police officers and was like, he's not acting right. So notably, the footage showed that no one had come to the house in the time between Chris leaving for work and Nicole coming to knock on the door. And it also showed that Chris had backed his truck up to the garage for a bit of time before he left for work. And according to Nate, this was unusual. Combined with the twitchy behavior while viewing the footage, it moved from unusual to very suspicious. So shout out to Nate. Keep an eye on your neighbors, folks, because that was a huge, huge bit of info for them to get. Go, Nate! Yes, we love Nate. I think it's easy for people to, like, kind of be like, well, maybe it's something else. Like, I don't want to say something. Like, I'm not sure if it's anything, but I'm really glad that he just immediately let them know because that is a massive piece of information. And that he paid close attention to his reaction while watching the footage for, you know, to see signs of guilt and like, okay, he's definitely not acting right. Like, this definitely is suspicious. The thing is, I feel like Nate definitely knew beforehand that there was something off with Chris. Oh, absolutely. Like, he just always knew. Like, sometimes you just get a gut feeling. Like, always listen to your gut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely get the indication that that's very accurate, that Nate was kind of meh about Chris. Yeah. So, Chris Watts was arrested two days after the murders on August 15th, and he confessed to all three after failing a polygraph test. So, as we talked about earlier in the episode, from a legal perspective, this is really interesting because a polygraph test is not reliable. Failing one is not a good indicator that someone is lying. But... It got the bastard to confess, so I'm not mad about it. It makes you look really bad. <laughs> it makes really you bad. look really like, bad. Like, I know that's it not... Hold up in court. It, exactly. It doesn't hold up in court, but, like, you would just look really bad in your community, even if he didn't get charged. It's a very convincing pressure tactic, because you get to really see how people squirm when they're questioned. It's, like, such a double-edged sword, though, because the thing is, if you refuse to get a polygraph, then, like, that also looks horrible. Yeah. And, like, the thing is, polygraphs are not, like, reliable. It doesn't yeah. matter. Like, I'm not even a fucking no. lawyer. I just watch a They're, lot of crime shows. Um, yeah. They're really... Polygraphs are considered really, really weak evidence. It's not evidence. I guess they're still used because of the pressure tactic. What I'm saying is... Not generally something that I think is beneficial or even a productive use of time in an investigation, but it got the bastard to confess, so I'm not mad about it. Okay, that's fair. 
Uh, Chris originally claimed that he watched Shanann strangle Bella and Cece. And that he strangled her in retaliation. And then he hid the girls' bodies in the petroleum tanks at his work site and buried Shanann in a shallow grave nearby. Obviously, this is not an accurate account of what happened, except for the fact that he did leave their bodies in a petroleum tank, and he did bury Shanann in a shallow grave. All three bodies were found on August 16th, and I remember the most haunting part of the documentary on this case, um, once again, plug The Murder Next Door on Netflix, because of Bella and Cece's exposure to the petroleum in the tanks, their bodies were considered hazardous materials. So, like, their grandparents couldn't even see the bodies. That literally breaks my heart. That's a whole new level of awful. It's been a couple years since I watched the documentary on this, but that's stuck in my mind this whole time. That they couldn't even see the bodies because they were considered hazardous which is just obviously obviously when you hear it it's horrible but at the same time like maybe that is beneficial to them in the same way of like do you really want the last image of your loved one to be that yeah i feel like to an extent it's also a small mercy to not have to see the bodies in that condition yeah i would i wouldn't want to devastating in the last the thing is if you can 100 percent confirm like through science with dna then like you don't need to identify them right and i I think they were probably identified through dental records that's the most common method of doing it now um so chris was ultimately charged with three counts of first degree murder which means that he intentionally killed all three of his victims with malice afterthought and no reasonable justification He was also charged with the death of a child under 12 years old, which was for Nico, unlawful termination of a pregnancy, and three counts of tampering with a dead body. Later, speaking with Dr. Phil, Chris claimed that he killed Shanann after they had an argument about divorce because he was having an affair. I really don't love talking about this guy. Like, I don't want to talk about his motivations because what he did was so abhorrent. Um, But apparently he was having an affair. There was talk of divorce. She was pregnant. If you are interested in that as a motivation, check out The Murderer Next Door on Netflix. It covers that in some pretty good detail with Facebook posts and interviews with friends. I didn't get into it because I don't like this guy and I don't want to talk about him. Allegedly, Bella walked into the room while Chris was smothering Shanann. Chris told her that Shanann was sick. He then put Shanann's body into his truck, hence why it was backed up to the garage, and then loaded the children in the back seat, where he smothered them to death with a blanket that he had in his car. Just imagining the fear that those children felt knowing that it was their own father committing those atrocities against them is, is horrible. And obviously his original claim that Shanann killed the girls is false and disgusting. And it's a lot like him. It's disgusting. He's disgusting. I just love how you're disgusting. Disgusting. I 100% agree, but disgusting. I I cannot emphasize this enough. Disgusting. I should have made it bold in my script. Um, Chris was sentenced to five life sentences. Three of them were served consecutively and two were served concurrently. Um... I'm not exactly sure how it came to five, but I couldn't find any straight info on that. 
Anyway, he was also... what do you mean? He was sentenced to five life sentences, but he only killed three people and then Nico. Oh, oh, I see. I don't know. Maybe it had to do with him, like, concealing evidence. Yeah, I don't know. So I just know that he got a life sentence for every murder he committed and then also a fifth one, unless the source I read was just not right. As the lawyer of our group. Okay. Okay. What do you get for, like, tampering with a body? I'm getting to that. Okay, because that could also be, like, Can another you? thing. He clearly tried to cover it up, which I feel like mm-hmm. could technically be a life sentence on itself. Yeah, so when someone's being sentenced, they have sentencing guidelines, which are kind of an idea of, like, you know, for this crime, people usually would be sentenced to five to seven years in prison. And then you have mitigating factors, which are um, specific factors that can be used to decrease the sentence. That would be mental health history, not having the right mental state when the crime occurred, like if you were under the influence of drugs, um, and a couple other things. But then there's also aggravating factors, which is like a particularly heinous crime. A particularly heinous crime is going to get you a stricter sentence. So that's less so something that would account for an entire extra life sentence, but more so something that would be factored into determining whether a life sentence would be appropriate for the original charges in the first place. It says here that there he was charged with first degree murder three times, and then he was charged with murder of a child 12 years or younger two times. Two times, okay. Well, so that would be... Bella, Cece, and Shanann, and then Bella and Cece again. How many children did they have that were 12 years or younger? Two that were alive, and then Nico. Oh. So I think I said earlier, and I was mistaken, that the charge for killing a child under the age of 12 was um, for Nico's killing. It was Bella and Cece. So first-degree murder, and then also unlawful killing of a child under the age I of 12. I see. Okay, would be applied so... to both of them. So that would be five charges that could oh, get a life sentence. I see. Okay. okay. I'm glad we sussed that out because I'm going to be honest, I did all my research on this today. So I was bound to make a couple errors. I didn't realize it was going to be so obvious, but um, okay. No, I was just Great. curious. No, no, don't, don't worry about it. Please call me out. Anyway, Chris was sentenced to five life sentences, as well as 48 years for the unlawful termination of Shanann's pregnancy with Nico and 36 years for tampering with the bodies of the deceased which was for putting the girls' bodies in the petroleum tanks and burying Shanann's body. I like that he got a long time for tampering with his bodies. He's going to die in prison. Mm, He should. He will. So he's currently serving all of his sentences um, in a prison in Wisconsin. He had to be moved for security reasons, and he's going to die in prison. That's definitely going to happen. There's no opportunity for parole with any of those life sentences. But Shanann's family requested that the prosecution not seek the death penalty because they didn't want any more death in this case, which I think is very noble. I, th- I also think there is just more to be said about making a person come to terms with what they did and suffer in jail. Right. I don't want to turn this into a referendum on the death penalty, but I know I personally have always thought that someone living in jail with their crimes for the rest of their life pretty much worse. I took a whole class on death row proceedings and how habeas corpus petitions work 
and stuff like that in the appeals process for death penalty cases, it's horrible. Most people are on death row for decades. I still think sitting in prison for the rest of your life, knowing what you did to your own family, is probably way worse. I think that for the super heinous criminals and people who are beyond rehabilitation and are just disgusting pieces of shit, what they should do is they should ask them and kind of like through psychological testing, identify if they would rather live or die and then do the opposite. I was going to say, and then do whatever they don't want. Yes. Yeah, I like like that. That might be considered torture. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. You tortured other people. Like an instance I'm thinking of is Ted Bundy wanted to live. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't want to die. Like he really wanted to live up until the last moment. Like he was wanting to live. So I'm thankful that he died because it was the opposite of what he wanted. You guys might not care about this being considered torture, but there is an amendment against that and also the Geneva Convention. Obviously, I know that that couldn't actually be done, but I'm just saying. The thing is, like, that's even, that's honestly even lighter than I think. Because I personally think that the worst hell would be to be put in solitary confinement 24 hours a day, no windows, no light, no socialization, let them go crazy. But you know, as a child killer, he might spend a lot of time in solitary anyway for his own safety. Yeah. Yeah, because obviously it doesn't matter if you get in jail. If you sexually assault or if you kill a child, you're fair game. And he's such a high profile case. Mm -hmm. This is when I have to remind the listeners of our podcast that none of us are in law enforcement. None of us have any particular familiarity with law enforcement policies. The extent of my knowledge on this is one class that I took <laughs> on the death penalty. So um, take everything we're saying right now with a grain of salt because yeah, we're not we don't we don't really mean this like as if we want to implement it within the United States of America right now. No. This is not a viable <laughs> system of governance. We just no. really hate Chris Watts. Yeah, we're just talking out of anger right now. So now that I've laid out the basics of the case, his sentence, the fact that he's going to rot in prison forever, which, woo, um, I want to talk about the specific subtype of murder that this is. It's known as family annihilation, which, um, as far as terminology goes, is very on the nose for what it is, Um, but it's also known as familicide. So... Such mass murders of one's own family are actually considered the most common type of mass murder. But the data on that is foggy, so, like, sources vary on that. So I'll say the claim is in contention, that they're a very common type of mass murder, but not necessarily the most prominent or common. It it kind of is up in the air right now. There's a lot of data out there that is contradictory. There's a lot of factors that come into play there, too. So most family annihilators are white men in their 30s. And most family annihilations occur in August, right before the school year starts. Mm. All of these ring true in the Watts family murders, every single one of them. Interestingly, a common motivation for family annihilation is financial difficulty. And the murderer, who is almost always the father, often feels as though they are saving their family members from some sort of perceived threat, whether it be of poverty or divorce or separation. All of these are motivations So this is a textbook example of family annihilation. So a researcher from Birmingham City University named David Wilson divides family annihilators into four categories. Anomic, disappointed, self-righteous, and paranoid. An anomic annihilator kills his family because of economic pressure and failures that he personally has experienced. 
Um, I think that's probably the best one to apply to this case, knowing their financial history. A disappointed annihilator kills his family because he aims to punish them for not living up to his expectations. I don't think that one really applies. A self-righteous annihilator kills his family because he seeks revenge on the mother of the children. I think that one could be a factor, but I don't think that's the main driving force. I do feel like right, that one is pretty common. He was having an affair, so I feel like taking I pictures. also hear a lot about people who are having affairs and the person that they're having an affair with doesn't want children. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, I'll just get rid of them. I've heard of that one like multiple times. Yep. As if that's even remotely how that works. Yeah, no. Mind boggling. Yeah. So the fourth kind of family annihilator is a paranoid annihilator who kills his family because he genuinely believes that doing so is an act of protection for them. That is obviously usually coupled with other mental illnesses that would lead to that paranoia. So based on these categories, in my wildly unprofessional opinion, I feel like I can't put enough disclaimers on this ever that I have no experience in this field. I took AP Psych. That's it. I would say... (laughs) Chris Watts is an anomic family annihilator who killed his family because of financial pressure that he blames himself for. So among um, significant familicides in recent years, this is probably the most significant. Um, I've got some other ones, though, some famous ones that you guys have definitely heard of. Um, We have Ronald DeFeo's murder of his family, which inspired the Amityville horror. Fun fact. Andrea Yates' murder of her five children. That was a very, very famous one in 2001. And interestingly, the death of Nazi propaganda minister Josef Goebbels. I did have to put the pronunciation there, like Christine did for all of hers, because it's not spelled Goebbels, and I didn't want to... It feels right not... I don't. Goebbels doesn't feel right, but the internet yeah. said Goebbels. Anyway... Together with his wife, they poisoned their six children before committing suicide during the Battle of Berlin, which was also when Hitler died. But Hitler didn't have children to annihilate. But Goebbels did, and he did. So are you saying that he would have been, Hitler would have been a family annihilator? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't quote this out of context, but like... No, no, no. Yeah, I, what? If Hitler had kids... I oh. think he would have done what Goebbels did and poisoned the kids so they would also die. No, I, I, I could see that. Especially because, like, he did commit suicide when he was cornered. So I feel like it's kind oh, of a right. similar... So that's exactly it. They got cornered. They oh, Christine is like, no. I'm still going back. I just don't understand the financial, like, you're killing your family for financial reasons. No, no, no. So this wouldn't be financial reasons. No, I know, I know. I'm going back to that one because I keep thinking about it. What do you mean? Like... It just doesn't make sense to me. Like, you're killing your family because you feel guilty about yeah. the financial situation. That... So why not do that to yourself? Oh, we are getting there. That is my next sentence. Okay. To most people, it doesn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense. Because right. you it look at that just, and you're like, I don't understand. It does so, not. Like, you don't, you you want them to live and th- whatever, go on. So... That's a really important aspect of family annihilators. They almost always kill themselves as well. Okay. (laughs) Which means that Chris Watts is a huge outlier in that regard. Every other example I listed there, Ronald DeFeo, Andrea Yates, and Goebbels, they all committed suicide after annihilating their families. So the fact that Chris Watts didn't makes him 
very much an outlier in this category. So logistically speaking, he's probably a family annihilator, but he really doesn't fill out that one core component. So I don't know. So do you think that maybe he didn't fulfill that last step? Because for some reason, it makes me think of that he was like a narcissist. He thought that he'd be able to get away with it, which I feel like I've also heard in a lot of other cases. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to point you again to the Netflix documentary um, that talks a lot about him um, and and touches on sort of that aspect um, of his personality. Um, but yeah, I, I think there are a few factors in play here. And I think one of them is that he blamed Shanann for their marital troubles. So wanted her dead, the financial issues... But I also feel like in some odd psychological twist, unlike other family annihilators, he somehow didn't feel like it was on him as much for some reason. Or he knew he thought he could have a life without them. It's just interesting. So he fits the definition of a family annihilator, but that's a really big part of being a family annihilator is that you they usually kill themselves after. Like I said, not a psychologist, but... um. It sounds like narcissism to me. I'm not a psychologist either, but that's where I go to. I don't know if the financial one really tracks with him. I don't know if any of them do. Because I feel like the financial one, like, you feel guilty, but he didn't... Like you said, it seemed like he wanted a life without them. That doesn't really track. Yeah, that's why I feel like among the four categories of family annihilators... He's an odd mix of a few of them. He doesn't squarely fit into any category. Yeah. I don't know. I've listened to other podcasts about him and they have let on that he was having an affair and he wanted to get rid of his prior life and continue Mm. on with her. So he was Mm. trying to just like eradicate his history. Right. And so I feel like that would file under the blaming the mother. Yeah. Like he blames the mother for the fact that he has a whole other family. So he kills her and the kids. When in reality, it's just his fucked up self. When reality is that he's the one having an affair while your wife is pregnant with your third child. Anyway, that was a good discussion on that. I enjoyed that thoroughly. So I want to really recognize the two heroes I mentioned in this case. We have Shanann's friend Nicole and the Wasis neighbor with Nate. Both of them had such familiarity with the comings and goings of the family that they immediately knew that something was wrong when Shanann missed an important appointment. And then when the security footage showed Chris's truck backed up to the garage in the early morning hours of August 13th, they both trusted their gut. And they're a really big part of um, how and why Chris was eventually held accountable for the atrocities committed against his family. And also, as someone from a small town, I know that the idea of familiarizing yourself with your neighbor's habits is pretty normal. I don't know if you guys... I mean, Christine, we live in a neighborhood with a lot of family, but, like, are you guys kind of familiar with your neighbor's, like, comings and goings? Like, I had a neighbor who always worked nights. So I would go to the bus stop in the morning for school, and he would just be coming in from work, and he would wave to me and stuff. And if his car was already in the driveway when I went to the bus stop, it either meant that I was late or he didn't have work that night. You know, like, you pick up on people's patterns. I only think that's because you had a connection. He would wave at you. But, like, for example, I don't. But I haven't lived here my whole life. I don't Mm -hmm. really... I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm gone most of the day. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I don't think I would notice anything, you know what I mean? The people across from me, I feel like kind of like I'll see them in the morning sometimes, but he also mm-hmm. owns his own business, so it's not always the same time. It's kind of all over the place and right. the people next to me are very private and they have a wall of hedges around them, yeah. so I don't <laughs> even see them. Mm-hmm. The people across from me, they just freaking the one in the White House, you know? Yep. I don't even know what they're doing. But all yep. I know is that they are having parties a lot. <laughs> and it sounds pretty lit there. And also very strange. I don't know. It seems kind of sketchy. But, like, there's so many cars there all the time. There's so many cars. There, There's cars coming. Coming and going at, like, 10 and 11 and 12. And I'm like, what is happening here? What people? I'm getting from this is that you say you don't notice and then you list all the ways that you do notice. Yes, but, like, there's no pattern, so I wouldn't be able to, like... Yeah. I wouldn't be able to be, like, this person didn't go here. If if the police asked you, like, would it be uncommon for your neighbors across the street to have someone show up at their house at 10 p.m., you'd be able to say... No. No, they do that all the time. That's true, yeah, but I wouldn't... I wouldn't notice it to this level where they were, like, oh, she didn't show up to her appointment or yeah, I well, like that was a friend very much on the friend that's who a friend's appointments schedule but i wouldn't i wouldn't be like nate you know right so what i take from this is that christine is jealous and she just wants to be invited to her neighbor's parties christine no i think sketchy <laughs> stuff is happening there i'm a little nervous i i think it's all fine like maybe it's low-key sketchy stuff and not high-key sketchy stuff but there's a lot of movement happening there's a lot of movement happening at all times well, that is a whole can of worms i did not intend to open up <laughs> it's truly a small town mystery in and of itself wow i just want to say one more thing the thing is i can't even keep up with my own life like, how am I supposed to pay attention to people around me that I don't even know? We only have so much I bandwidth. <laughs> only have so much mental capacity. <laughs> well, my, my point in saying this is that I feel pretty strongly that this case would have gone either unsolved or, if not completely unsolved, unsolved for a little while longer if it had taken place in a different setting, if it had been a bigger town or even a city, because I feel like the level of awareness of the neighbors, of care for your friend's safety and behavior is something that's very particular to a small town in a lot of ways. Yeah. That small community vibe where you just, you know people in a different way. Um, so I'm I'm sure that uh, as Chris Watts rots in a prison cell in Wisconsin, woo! That the small town environment of Frederick, Colorado is a pretty good chunk of the reason why. So, it's a small town mystery, but this one's solved. So, nice. Yeah, a little, I don't want to say a happy ending because it's a devastating case, but he is rotting in prison, so that's good. That is good. I that's like the that most you can closure. ask for. You love to see it. Thank you, Kate. That was very yes. interesting. Very well done. And I like how. You put the small town kind of twist on it where you looked at it from that vantage point. Very cool. I don't want to spoil exactly what I'm doing for the next episode or some point in the next couple episodes, but it's a good example of a small town ruining an investigation. So, Ugh. yeah, it's going to be a good time. It's going to be a great time. Okay, I personally enjoyed the psychological conversation that we had Mm because i love that shit no me too and that's why like when i was reading about it and it was talking about oh this is largely considered a case of a family annihilator i was like i wonder if that's like a technical term and it turns out it is it is so yeah 
I thought that was like super interesting. And he doesn't fit squarely in any of the categories. I feel like that happens a lot in psychology that like a lot of terminology is like these clearly defined boxes and then people just never fit in them quite right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a really good example of that, but I don't know, it's hard because I think as humans we're so complex. Like you mm-hmm. can't just shove us into a box. It doesn't matter. Right. You can't just say it's only one thing that led to this happening no. because there's clearly a lot going on. And once again, I point you to the Netflix documentary, uh, The Murderer Next Door, because it talks a lot about his background. And um, I don't like him. I don't want to talk about him. But his wonderful wife, Shanann, his daughters, Bella and Cece, and his son, Nico, I hope they rest in peace, knowing that the atrocities he committed against them have landed him in prison for the rest of his life. At least he didn't get away with it. At least he didn't get away with it. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Nate and Nicole <laughs> Atkinson. Anyway, stay tuned um, in the next couple weeks for some cool announcements from us for stuff we have coming up. And yeah, I'll uh, see you guys. See you guys on the flip side. We're actually we're having a birthday party for one of our friends tomorrow, so I'll see you guys tomorrow. In dad attire. Yes, it's a dad-themed party. So yes. we're all dressing as dads. It's gonna be a vibe. Alright. Well, I'm excited. See you on the flippity flip. Peace. <laughs> See you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.